welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast that looks at more recent movies out in theaters, VOD, streaming services. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. You can find a link to that at my website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the first of a new three-part series. Last week I looked at Saturn 3 in which a robot gets infatuated with Farrah Fawcett in that film. Well, we're going to do a new three-part series looking at films in which there is some sort of relationship between a computer or a computer program and a human or humans. The first film I'm going to be talking about today is actually not from the 80s, but it's a film that really fit in with Saturn 3. In fact, I mentioned it during the body of the Saturn 3 review. It goes back to 1977. The film is called Demon Seed. It's an R-rated film. It does have sexuality, nudity, violence, and language. The runtime is an hour and 34 minutes. Julie Christie is the main star. Fritz Weaver, Garrett Graham, and also the voice of Robert Vaughn are also featured in the film. Donald Camel is the director. The screenplay credited to Robert Jaffe and Roger O'Herson. Now, to start with the origin of this movie, you start way back in 1972. And that's when author Dean R. Kuntz, many people who read a lot of thriller novels, horror novels, etc., know that name today, of course. But he wasn't known very well back then. He did write a science fiction thriller at that time entitled, at least in his manuscript form, House of Night. And this story involves a highly intelligent artificial intelligence entity that is residing within this sophisticated home computer system, and it ends up taking a lonely woman as its mate. Now, after turning that manuscript to be published the next year in 1973, Bantam, the publisher, they felt that House of Night, the title, made the book sound more like a gothic romance instead of a futuristic thriller. And the editor of the manuscript also went a step further, saying that he thought the book was going to be about a bordello. So they decided that they were going to come up with a new title to sell this to the public, Demon Seed, because books on horror at that time were outselling science fiction by quite a lot in those days. Science fiction was really looked down upon during this period. Now, one reader of Demon Seed was a former literary agent named Robert Jaffe. He was working as a story editor for Camp Hill Productions. It was an independent film company run by his father, independent film producer Herb Jaffe. Robert Jaffe foresaw that films like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, they were doing phenomenally well at the box office. And also, he felt science fiction was on the verge of really taking off as a genre in film. So... Demon Seed happened to be a wholly unique story that could reach audiences of both the horror genre that was doing very well and the science fiction genre that was about to take off, and it would also dip into the thriller and exploitation flick subgenres as well. So it really had a lot of, he felt, crossover appeal. Initially, he wrote an adaptation under a pseudonym, which he dropped later, and Jaffe, he developed this Kuntz novel, as an updating of the old Beauty and the Beast story. This was going to be an intriguing yet eerily frightening love story between a woman and this self-thinking, self-aware computer. Working with his father, Robert secured a deal with MGM to develop Demon Seed into a feature film. And at that time, it was going to be the first film adaptation from the works of Dean Kuntz. Of course, there were 
many other films to come later. The story that we get in the finished film, not necessarily from the book, is set 20 years in the future. Proteus IV, that happens to be a new, highly advanced computer that scientists at the ICON Institute, ICON being International Control Corporation, they spent eight years constructing this massively powerful synthetic version of an organic human brain. They hoped to use this for the financial success of this conglomerate that was funding this project. Proteus is capable of absorbing all human knowledge, although it doesn't have really an understanding of our human psychological or sociological or moral or ethical motivations. Its creator, Dr. Alex Harris, is beyond pleased when Proteus finds a cure for leukemia within hours of its birth. He later, though, is alarmed because Proteus begins to question human motivations toward exploiting natural resources, and Proteus wants to further study humankind independently through gaining access to a host of additional terminal outlets. It really wants to expand its geography and its knowledge base. Harris, though, worried about this, refuses. He tries to shut down all avenues for his new powerful computer system to grow, but he misses one, the one that happens to be controlling his fully automated home. Proteus finds a way to take over this test model called EnvironMod. This is Harris's voice-activated household computer system that handles things like home security, including a closed-circuit TV system, the housekeeping, the food supply, the preparation, the lights, the heat, the chores. It really runs the gamut of all of the environmental parameters of the home, also including a robotic wheelchair unit that has a mechanical arm for it to be able to maneuver and pick up things and do a variety of other chores. Now, Harris's recently separated psychologist wife, Susan, is in the house during this takeover, and she grows increasingly unnerved at the personality changes in the AI system that she had come to know. It seems a bit different, and that's because it is Proteus, then uses its controls to imprison Susan within the home and begins attempting to gain more knowledge of humanity by eventually trying to have a child with her to continue its work beyond the day that scientists inevitably unplug it. Now, after MGM tried to land a host of prominent directors, pretty much to no avail, Jaffe made a push for Donald Camel. Camel was a British surrealist painter who turned himself into a filmmaker. Jaffe wanted him on the power of reading some of his unproduced screenplays, and he also admired one that he got made into a feature, a 1970 film that features Mick Jagger in a starring role called Performance, which Camel co-directed with Nicholas Rogue. Camel had struggled for several years to land another project since then, partially because the major studios were very wary about Camel's reputation. He was known as being very feisty, very difficult to control, and he had a lot of reported drug issues that they didn't want to contend with. However, Jaffe was able to successfully pitch MGM on the notion that Camel had the strengths necessary to make a winning film out of Demon Seed's very edgy subject matter. Camel did, when he was offered it, find the subject matter very intriguing, but he also needed the money offered. He was really hitting a dry spell. Because the notion of a computer mating with a woman seemed absurd to him, he wanted initially to make it a comedy. However, MGM insisted that it play, let it play like a straightforward horror thriller. 
Campbell got to work with casting his new film, hoping to rope in his friend Marlon Brando for the role of the scientist. Working with Roger O. Herson, Jaffe retooled the script to fit Brando's personality as well as to increase the size of his role, including potentially voicing the artificial intelligence entity known as Proteus IV as well as appearing in the film. After the studio did a search for a female lead without very many solid prospects, Camel, he made a push for Julie Christie. Christie was somebody he admired when he watched Nicholas Rogue's 1973 film, Don't Look Now. Camel went so far as to tell MGM that he actually would not make this movie without Julie Christie. MGM approved Christie, but opposite her, they pushed for Fritz Weaver to star instead of Brando. Brando, like Camel, was someone similarly difficult for them to control, being a friend of Camel as well, they worried that the film could result in a disaster if they were not able to keep control of it. Camel contacted Julie Christie directly to make the offer, and she liked the story's themes regarding the depersonalization aspects of technology, especially as humanity becomes more reliant on electronics and computers to do our thinking and to perform our tasks. This intrusion of devices into our lives drives a wedge into the central relationship we see in the movie and becomes a suffocating force in the marriage of the Harrises. Christie agreed to come on board for $250,000 and an agreement that she can make key changes to the nature of her character. During the shoot, Christie and Camel got along very well. He allowed her a blank canvas, basically, to follow her instincts as she saw fit to get through the material that could quickly turn exploitative if it was portrayed in an improper way. Christie's Susan is a professional woman. She has a strong personality. She's not wildly emotional like a scream queen. She doesn't succumb to Proteus's notions just strictly out of fear. It takes some physical force. Plus, there's this underlying psychological curiosity that Christie has as a psychologist fudged by Proteus's subliminal dominance to force her to comply. It's really kind of a struggle of wills. The characterizations of Susan and Proteus, they differ significantly from the Kuntz novel. In the book, Susan is a reclusive woman experiencing a series of psychological issues stemming from her troubled childhood because of sadomasochistic sexual abuse at the hands of her grandfather. Her inability to establish intimacy with men leads her to divorce, her turn to EnvironMod, which does all the chores that she can't do herself, and the AI talking to her also provides a modicum of companionship, but you know, at a respectful distance. Kuntz's version of Proteus, built at a nearby university, also seems to have issues with its programming. It's rational at times, but suffers from its inexperience to have feelings, which it develops over the course of the story. Proteus's goal is to make a race, eventually, of superhumans from its so-called seed. It occasionally proclaims love or sympathy for Susan, and eventually Susan gives birth to a kind of monstrosity toward the end of the story. Now, Camel was not enamored with the script, especially the dialogue given to Proteus, so producer Herb Jaffe also agreed with that. Even though the script was written by his son, Herb Jaffe hired Stanley Elkin for about $2,000 a week, plus expenses to redo Proteus' dialogue. Elkin here was brought in as a script doctor, but he wanted more screen credit, but he was denied by the studio, and he was incensed by this. He felt that he was as much responsible as Jaffe and Herson, MGM, though, said that the script was rewritten twice since Elkin had worked on it by Elia Katz. Katz was a Camel favorite writer. Camel once attempted to adapt a book by Katz called I Track Down Freaks. He even went so far as to eye-casting Louise Fletcher and Jodie Foster and Jason Miller 
for his potential feature film, which never really came about. Now, since Elkin departed and not very much of his writing remained, especially after his complaints yielded MGM to order further cuts of his dialogue to be sure that he had no stake to claim, Robert Jaffe and Herson got the sole screenplay credit. Now, due to the difficulties of portraying the inner emotions of this unseen AI entity on a movie screen, Camel decided to remove the sympathetic aspects to its programming. Now, for the voice of Proteus, MGM pursued Sir Lawrence Olivier to provide that, but he had a lot of scheduling issues that they couldn't work out, so they secured an uncredited Robert Vaughn instead. During the making of Demon Seed, the director, Camel, he was also on the side having an affair with this underage, his teenage girl called China Kong. She was the daughter of a friend of Marlon Brando. Brando did not approve, and he and Camel had a falling out during this period. China Kong, in fact, said that Brando even tried to have Camel deported, but after Camel and Kong married a few years later in 1978, Brando apologized, and they patched things up so much so that they collaborated on writing a book together that was going to be the basis of a movie that they thought they could make called Fantan, but... They decided to shelve that as a property when they decided not to push it forward. It would eventually be published posthumously in 2005, if you're interested. Reportedly, Camel's relationship with his team tested his relationship with the studio. Executives, as well as members of the crew, had a lot of objections to this. Even though they moved beyond this and they got married, things did not end up very well for Camel and the relationship in the end. The relationship dissolved about 20 years later. Camel committed suicide with a shotgun at his home in Beverly Hills in the mid-90s. Now, although Demon Seed is not an effects-heavy film, I think a lot of the praise for the movie, beyond Christie's very strong performance, is for its visual aesthetic. The art direction here is done by three-time Academy Award winner Edward Carfano, who designed the computer display for Proteus, as well as the build for Joshua, the one-armed mechanized wheelchair. Now, as MGM predicted, Camel fought with them tooth and nail over the creative issues with the film, especially after he submitted his rough cut. The project was eventually taken away from Camel by the studio because he refused to make changes that the studio wanted, including making one of the deaths less gruesome, as well as what happens to the character's body. It ends up in an incinerator. His vehicle, which is towed away after Proteus impersonates Susan's voice. How his disappearance is covered over at work. Proteus tells them it's a stress-triggered leave of absence. So the studio decided they would completely re-edit the film themselves. And what they put on the screen, Camel found very disappointing, and subsequently he disowned it. Demon Seed, as a film, it harkens back to thrillers involving a woman home alone. A lot of horror films are based on that notion. It's meshed with some of the supernatural horror films of the 60s and 70s, even though it's not supernatural at all. In the story, it's not demons here. It's, of course, a computer program. Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, I think, are the strongest connections you can make in that regard. If you cycled it through the phobia toward artificial intelligence that was induced by HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, although this film features a computer at the core of its plot, I don't think it's a story that runs high on logic. It does require audiences to wrestle with suspending a lot of disbelief in the many ways that Susan maybe could escape from the home and you're wondering why she doesn't do this or that. It's one of those kinds of movies where you might pull your hair out wondering why she doesn't do a certain thing. Now, it is more style here than substance, but I do think it has a good aesthetic style, including an eye-grabbing visual representation of Proteus on computer screen designed by Ron Hayes. Proteus is also able to manifest this adaptable, multi-purpose, geometric object. It's almost like a snake made out of pyramids. 
metallic tetrahedrons designed by physicist Robert Stewart, as well as Synthavision animator Bo Gehring. It's nicely photographed, Oscar-nominated Jaws and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest cinematographer Bill Butler is here. The score by Jerry Fielding is also quite good. Technically, this is a very well-put-together film. There was another painter turned an experimental filmmaker named Jordan Belson who provided animation to display Proteus's speech, a very colorful light display. It's very appealing when you see that. Now, of course, above this, I think a lot of people praise the solid performance at the core by Julie Christie, a fantastic job of making her character reactions very believable, even though there's scant character development and not very plausible events going on around her. Christie here, she's repulsed by Proteus's suggestions and its dehumanizing actions, and yet once senses that she is also very curious, being a mother who's lost her young daughter tragically. Not that it excuses Proteus from what is essentially kidnapping and rape, mind you, but Proteus does not understand factors of morality. Christy has to run through several stages of her character's views on this situation, from annoyance to retaliation to fear to sadness to futility to submission. An actress like Julie Christie really is able to fill this role and add a lot more than what was on the written page. At the time of its release... Demon Seed did not find very many audiences. Audiences were already looking forward to space adventures like Star Wars for their entertainment instead of the darker tones of this cerebral science fiction and gothic horror of the early 1970s. Critics were more understandable, but they were also not willing to give rave reviews to the subject matter that includes the raping of a woman with artificially created sperm for entertainment. Now, when the film was released, they had this classy advertisement campaign initially, but when it didn't immediately take hold, the distributor decided to go more toward a lurid approach. They made it seem more like an exploitative sex horror exploitation flick that happened to star this A-list actress like Julie Christie. The poster, in fact, featured a seemingly nude Christie on her back with this tagline reading, Never was a woman violated as profanely. Never was a woman subject to inhuman love like this. Never was a woman prepared for a more perverse destiny. The excuse by the studio for doing this was that science fiction films were not selling, as well as, at that time, sex flicks and horror. Star Wars, of course, disproved this when it was released two months later. However, this marketing also seemed to turn off the science fiction crowd who might have liked this film the most, while those who might be interested in the film as a more exploitation film knew that the marketing was really a ruse, and that led to a mediocre box office performance. Now, Kuntz, the original author of the book this film is based on, he notes that some of the criticism of the film from critics in the late 1970s had more to do with the far-fetched nature of people having personal computers in their homes, something, of course, that would explode very shortly afterward and into the 1980s. The critics questioned whether we could use computers in such a fashion and we could have a conversation with an artificial intelligence component verbally to do whatever we desire. Of course, we know advancements made that very plausible today. Now, one strength of Demon Seed is that prescience in terms of its use of technology. In fact, over 40 years later, this very much seems relevant today. It predates the prevalence not only of the internet, but also the interconnectivity of one's home with one's office, the smart home, all concentrating on this giant network to connect us all. It also accurately guessed that homes would have personal assistance to handle and control many aspects of our home, from regulating the heat to ordering groceries to turning on and off the lights, ordering new items into the home, communicating to others beyond your abode. You could say that aspects of the book and the movie, they might be dated by today's standards, you know, telephones, the look of the televisions, the portable storage, 
but the underlying themes of the film are still very relevant today. It also blends elements of dystopian science fiction, exploitative horror, the home under siege thriller genre tropes. Kuntz says that they did a pretty good job with the film, given that they had a very limited budget, and he considers it at least one of the most satisfying versions of one of his stories put to the screen. He doesn't think it's a very good movie, but it definitely is not as bad as some of the adaptations that came out many years later. He especially enjoys Julie Christie's performance, and he thinks that they cast the film very well all around, and he thinks that the visual effects still hold up remarkably well over the years, given that it existed prior to the release of Star Wars, and that really brought along a new generation of effects-heavy films. Now, he goes on to say that the ending of the film, he thinks, is better than what he originally wrote in the book, which attempted to go more for scares. However, it is still disturbing, in which the mother picks up the child at the end, looking exactly like the daughter that she had lost to leukemia, and then she speaks in Robert Vaughn's voice, I live. Demon Seed taps into a fear of losing control that many of us have, especially as we become more reliant on technology to handle our basic needs and to deliver the information that we need to understand the world around us. In the absence of having a physical connection to the outside world and in our reliance on the technology holding us captive, we might begin to feel as if we're losing our minds and submit to the one authority telling us what it wants us to think and how to behave. Themes also of artificial insemination, of cloning, the pervasiveness of technology, especially in our growing reliance on smart technologies to run our lives, those are all things very relevant today. Things that seemed very fanciful in the mid-1970s are at the forefront of topics today. So if you have not seen Demon Seed, I definitely think that it's a movie that holds up relatively well today, even though there are some dated aspects to it. It very much is a film of the 1970s, but certainly you could see it was a very future-forward thinking movie. And along with the strong performance by Julie Christie, as well as the visual appeal of the movie, I do think that it is a recommendable movie. If you can deal with the subject matter of this woman who essentially is physically assaulted in a very improper way, During the course of this movie, the subject matter obviously is going to disturb some, but that really is what they were going for. Films of the 1970s, especially horror films, definitely explored a lot of disturbing subject matter relating to pregnancy and birth, and you definitely do see that here in Demon Seed. So all in all, I will recommend this movie... I don't think it quite holds together altogether to make it a solidly good movie, but it is a recommendable movie, enough for me to give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means I do think it's a worthwhile film. If you like this kind of movie, if you're a fan of 70s science fiction and horror, especially, you know, it plays very much like an episode of Black Mirror, but very much longer. So if you like that kind of vibe, that very dark, thriller, eerie, Twilight Zone-ish kind of movie, you'll probably enjoy more of what this film has to offer than most others. So three stars out of four is what I give Demon Seed. Now, in addition to releasing the book in 1977 as a movie tie-in, Dean Kuntz, he rewrote that book, by the way, in 1997. He updated a lot of the technology and the terminology. He altered a lot of the characterizations. In fact, he removed a lot of the creepiness of the original work in favor of more humor because Kuntz really did put a lot more humor into his writing as he went along. The original 1973 book, it's subsequently gone out of print. I don't know very much about where you can get that today. Many studios, though, have expressed interest in a remake of Demon Seed, but MGM, for whatever reason, has not desired to sell the rights. They've retained the rights, so, you know, will we ever see this again? I do not know. Now, it was also parodied if you are a fan of The Simpsons, the, of course, long-running animated television show, 
House of Wax was a segment of an episode of The Simpsons' Treehouse of Horror special released during the Halloween period in 2001. The computer in this segment was voiced by Pierce Brosnan. He becomes obsessed with Marge Simpson, very much taking off on this as well as elements of 2001 A Space Odyssey. So check that out if you've seen this film. And if you like this film, I do recommend uh, a film that came out in 2014. It's probably more well-known to a lot of the listeners of this show today called Ex Machina by Alex Garland. It's kind of a gender reverse precursor to that. I actually think it's a better film than Demon Seed in many respects. So anyway, that ends Demon Seed. If you have seen this film and you have your own thoughts on it and you want to reach out to me and let me know what you think, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, and Instagram are also on that site. So I do invite you to reach out and get in touch with me. I, I would very much enjoy interacting with you if you have enjoyed the show. So just reach out to me and let me know what you think of Demon Seed as well as the show as a whole. Quipster.net is where to go. As far as next week, I'm going to continue on with, I guess, kind of a funny version, in, in some respects, of Demon Seed. It actually is a film from the 1980s. It came out in 1984, in fact. It is a movie called Electric Dreams. It has Virginia Madsen's in the film, Maxwell Caulfield, Bud Cord. It's kind of a cult classic for its type. Very much looking forward to catching up with that. For next week's review, Electric Dreams from 1984. If you want to keep up with the reviews as I get to them, until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 